welcome to the Coaching Family Soccer Coaching Podcast. A podcast for soccer coaches from grassroots to the pro game. Soccer coaches who love the game, love coaching and want to get better. Join our community on Twitter at Coaching Family. So guys, welcome back to another show, the uh, Coaching Family Soccer Coaching Podcast. I'm joined by a dream team of uh, coaches here tonight. Um, if, I was, if I was going to have an academy, these two would be two of the first names on the team sheet. Uh, obviously, Glenn, Glenn Hicks, uh, welcome as always. Cheers, mate. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, and Harry Watlin, all the way from, well, I think he's in Tampa, but as uh, Harry Watlin, all the way from America, former academy coach at Chelsea, West Ham, Millwall, now first team head coach, at uh, Hartford in Connecticut. H, how's it going, mate? Yeah, good. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate it, mate. Thanks for taking the time. It's always good to get some more voices. And today, the topic of the show is overloads. And I thought it'd be apt to have you, H, just obviously with your experience working, you know, from H to the first team and you can share some of your your, your knowledge and and what it's like really delivering this sort of thing up at the, up, up at the uh, highest level. But give us like, you know, what's your, you know, if I say to you overloads, what's your, what's your initial thoughts on that age? What's, what, do you, what do you think about that? I just think it's, it's the thing that we search for in the game, isn't it? It's, you know, especially, I feel like, I feel like if you start at a, you know, at a real base level, it's, it's, it's about that decision-making of find, you know, trying to find a spare player. Um, when you're working with the little ones, it's do they use them to give them the ball or do they use them by not giving them the ball? And then at the top level, um, you know, first team level, it's what you want to find on the pitch, all over the pitch, whether you're building, you want to use your goalkeeper, you know, or your, your six to make the extra one or you're talking about the final third. You know, they're the things that come to mind for me straight away. How, how, how important are overloads at the, that first team level, at the highest level? Yeah, no, they're massive. They're, they're massive. I think we, you know, initially we'll, we'll try and, you know, we'll, we'll try and get the ball into our exciting players to isolate. But if you can, you know, if you can isolate by outnumbering, it's even better for me. It's even better. Um, I think you, you know, you, you find that your magicians on the pitch will create those overloads either by creating them, giving someone the ball and setting that scenario up with a pass, or they'll go and find a space where they become, you know, they become a part of that act, if you like. But they're massive, so we're really important. So then how much, I mean, what does that look like in your training program and, you know, in, you know, in practice? That was, that was, you know, gives a bit of an idea of the detail. How do you deliver that detail on the pitch to the players or maybe in, like, off the pitch and stuff like that? Yeah, no, no. We, we, so we predominantly here, we predominantly play with, with, with wingers constantly. So whether that's a 4-3-3 or a 3-4-3. Three, three. So, you know, we'll try and occupy the spaces where we can't really be marked. Um, and that's, it's quite fashionable to call them half spaces and whatnot. But I'll just, you know, I'll just say sort of stand out of position, stand in awkward, awkward spots where, you know, you can create space, find space. Um, and then in, in the practices, what, you know, regardless of what you're doing, you know, there's got to be an element of decision making to it. So even if we're doing a directional possession, there's always going to be a constant to try and isolate, try and find an advantage, try and find a space to find an advantage. Um, and then you build that up towards the, you know, the main event, which is the game. So for me, you know, ideally it's isolating a centre half or isolating a fullback into an awkward, an awkward scenario where they've got to defend space and the man and the ball. For me, that's that's the ideal scenario that we try and create. Interesting. Glenn, what's your thoughts? I say overloads, what's what's your 
immediate thoughts about that. Yeah, it was interesting. We're just going to go with that, um, just pounce on a little concept there that, that Harry was talking about. And again, it goes in with what we were saying the other day. So there's concepts there that, that you can put into a kid's head at nine years old. So when he was talking about going in almost unorthodox positions, if you encourage a child to stand between two players, or if there's three players stand in the pocket in the triangle between three, or can you find a pocket between four? You know, you can see it now, fullback, midfielders, or two centre-backs, two centre-mids. That basic concept we were talking about the other day, so that can start from under nines and tens in terms of concept and being unorthodox with your positioning. But obviously at the elite, at the top end where, where Harry's working now, it's obviously about exploiting it and um, being super efficient with it, isn't it? So it's interesting to, to see about the way he's talking about positioning now. Yeah, so then thinking about like we go to the you know the the beginning of the player development cycle, you know all of us have worked with the eights and nines and that sort of thing. Wait, what's your what's your thoughts on delivering it at the very youngest age groups? What, what does that look like? Do you think what's the most effective way to do it at the youngest age group to make it productive and when they get to the older age groups? Yeah, I used to do it back to front to be honest, and I'm you know, I'm not sure it was everyone's cup of tea, but I would I would I would always start one v one and then introduce the the additional player, so they would start to think 2v1. So to a certain eye, you might be making it easier for the player, but I think when you introduce an extra decision, you're just trying to broaden their horizons on it. So it's not necessarily always worrying about, am I making the practice easier? It's, you know, am I adding an extra tool? And then, then it comes down to, you know, the player's maturity, where they are on that development cycle. I think, you know, am I going to, like I said it before, you either use him legitimately to set him up and let him go and let him play, or you use him to bounce and combine, or you use him to fake and go yourself. Um, and I think that that then boils down to, you know, the craft, the flair, the decision making. Um, I know we, you know, we're quite similar. So we never really used to encourage the players to overly give the ball to anyone else, as you know, in in those younger age groups because we wanted them to develop themselves. But that decision making tool at the top end. You know, it has to be developed in those age groups. At the top end, it's the most important thing, your decisions. I've seen many a player that have got all the tools, but that capacity to make that split-second decision of, you know, whether to give and go, whether to whether to give and support underneath or whether to not give at all and use to to almost fake is, is, is really key and really important. Yeah, it's a great point. And essentially what you said there, start with 1v1 and then move up to 2v1. So we, we had this conversation the other day when we were talking about um, how, what sort of sessions we're designing? I, I, I also want to say I think this. I think sometimes coaches work too much on the overloads at the youngest age groups, and then we have to, when and when you potentially put them into a one v one or a two v two, and there's no overload, they struggle because they don't have that easy pass, if you like. And I think that I think that's a potential issue where you got you know you hammer it so much, and I've seen it like especially so much rondo work and possession work at the youngest age groups. There's always an overloaded that they're you know, never underloaded or just you know man on man player on player that maybe that there's you know they're missing you're missing a trip because the player's always got an easy easy decision to make where they need to solve the problem themselves what's your thought on that H? Yeah no I think I think you have to strip it right back and don't forget you know the, the main way you create an overload in the first place is by outplaying 1v1 that's the main that's the main way you know that for me again what a 1v1 player breaks any tactic in the world so the game will always start 11 v 11. Everyone will stand where they stand from kickoff, but then it's about creating and finding space. And that sort of mini 4v4 game that's going on on the right-hand side of the pitch can soon become a 4v3 by someone outplaying or combining or, or like I say, leaving it for someone in a, in a better, you know, more advantageous position. So 
I, I think you have to do it like that, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been really strong on that. On, on, you know, I hate to see, I hate to see a, you know, a good player or what seems a good player in an awkward position at 12, 13, 14, 15, and they just don't have it in their locker to get out of trouble themselves. And I feel like that's, that's been because they've, you know, they've not been put in those positions in the first place as a younger player by their coach. So I think it's really important. Yeah, and, I, and then I suppose that's it. You know, it's a lot easier to to coach, you know, in a, in a 2v1 situation than it is to try and develop a player to beat in a 1v1. Right, I suppose, of that. Glenn, any thoughts on that? Yeah, just touching on the individual um, tools that you've got to create the overloads is really important. Um, so if you think of like a Busquets, Iniesta and Messi as three key players, and they was all really, really good at creating overloads. And you could probably chuck a Danny Alves into that as well, that they would all do it in their own way. So Busquets would obviously do his obvious stuff, maybe look one way, close his hips and pull a pass through the lines. But on, and he's obviously penetrated the lines there and created some form of overload. But then you would have had on the other end of that, the receiving Iniesta drifting in in their unorthodox positions like Harry was talking about a minute ago to receive it and they go out the back four. But then at times, so, you know, you look at Atletico Madrid the other night that they really stubbornly beat Manchester United and deserve to win. And they weren't giving up overloads. They weren't surrendering spaces. And that's when maybe your Lionel Messi drops on the ball. We can all picture the goal against Real Madrid, you know, the one where Busquets just literally drops it to him and says, go and do your stuff. And sometimes whether it's individual brilliance taking a whole team on or, you know, Messi will drop into midfield areas and people think it's because he's getting impatient, but really the passing's not working and they want to drop him in there to, to go past one or two to then get a 3v2. So it's it's important point that Harry made there. And I think coaches need to consider that. How many different ways are we creating? How many tools, like how are we using the players' tools they've got to create the overload is a really important one with session design, I think, as well. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, if you talk about session design, then, then what does it look like? H, you talked about 1v1s and then going into like a 2v1. But what other things, you know, if you're if you're like, a, you know, if you're, if you're an under-nice coach, you've got your boys for an hour a week or the girls for an hour a week, what sort of stuff are you, you know, practically delivering to try and, you know, get the overload in there? I think, yeah, I would, again, I would, I would go, I would start off just with the 1v1 confrontation before I'd introduce that and then different ways of, the different scenarios that, that that happens, does it happen front on? Does it happen sort of front to back? The most popular one in the Premier League is actually when the when the player is behind you. So that's the, you know, that's that's the, a higher percentage of those 1v1s where you imagine, you know, the wide player dropping in, facing his own goal, full back going really tight and you're having to wriggle away. Then, then the introduction for me would come from, you know, do you want to make it directional so it looks more like the game? Do you want to have you know multiple goals where you've got bounce players so that they've got to be able to twist their hips and and outplay, twist, turn, combine, use different surfaces of the foot? It's it has to be for me. So it has to be you know it has to be all built around that and all built around that central player that can almost show their stuff. And this is how I this is how I do it myself. This is how I do it myself using a teammate, and then this is how I do it myself by almost setting up the teammate in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose it's just all about directional. So you think of like a classic overload practice, it'd be like, you know, 2v1 to a goal or something like that. I suppose it's just thinking of creating way. I remember John McDermott used to do one. It's difficult if you're, if you're listening, but he'd have, I mean, three players at top in a, in a triangle. The top player in a triangle has the ball, passes to one player. The other player hasn't got the ball, drops and becomes a defender and that creates a 2v1. And they always talked about driving at the heart of the player. Then the other player's got a decision. Does he stay wide? Does he do an un, un, like an underlap or overlap or something like that? So you talk about the movement. 
driving direct at the defender to make them engage them, to make them commit and then popping it round or faking or whatever. And then almost a transition where there's another ball coming. So then a player out wide's got a ball come crack with boss and he's got, you've got 2v1 in the box as well. So it's a different sort of overload, isn't it? So you know, you've got that one in the box, then I've got, you know, find the spare pass in the box of like a cutback sort of thing. So it's like a two-phase sort of practice, which I think always, which are always sort of interesting. Any any sort of practices that stick out to you, Glenn, like that? Any sort of favourite practices? Yeah, I, 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 when I do it, I do a hell of a lot of overloads. But again, like we were saying the other day, so I do it more because of the style of play that I want to encourage from kids right up to, you know, if I was working senior football, like I do with a 16 to 20 year olds at the minute, trying to prepare them for senior football. Um, I do the overloads as much to coach the defenders because I think we're going to be a team that want to dominate the ball today, right? So we're going to play, have a majority of possession. We're not going to find ourselves in organised defending much. So actually, we're going to do a lot of 2v1s, 3v2s. And 4v3s, but in my planning, so I always do, can we create some plus one situations or some mm-hmm. minus one and plus two? <laughs> it's very rare the game gets to plus three because if you're in a 4v1 situation, you know, the game must be in serious chaos. But it's about creating the situations. Where do you want it? Do you want it around the penalty box? So are the team going to play an extreme low block today? Uh, this is more at the top end, obviously. But if it is, then we have to play in a tighter space and the, the overload will look different. But if it's build-up play, and, and sometimes I think kids find it difficult to play out from the back, but if it's build-up play from the back, there will always be an obvious pass. And the obvious one is the goalkeeper. So I try to get the goalkeeper in the session as much as possible if it's working with the defenders. But obviously, if it's at the top end, it's more it's more about creating that situation. Do you know what I mean? Almost chopping out a bit of the pitch and saying, OK, ha- what are we working on and what type of overload is it we're, we're, we're trying to create? So one of your 4v3s, for example, that, what would that be? One of those different scenarios that could be any of those scenarios? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, sometimes, so I'll do, you know, like a wave practice. So we'll start with in threes. Yeah. And again, if you want to go from the halfway line and you think, oh, you know what, the boys are not good at exploiting space in behind. I'll start a wave practice from the halfway line to the goal and just get them working the patterns. And then we'll go, right, now let's go opposed. You attack and then you defend. And then just chuck a magic man in there. So work on your number nines and say, right, now it's a 3v3. So you attack free towards the goal. You immediately turn and recover. So you're working on your recovery defending and it's a 3v3. If you just drop a number nine in there, and I like to have several number nines on the side of the pitch, having a couple of goes in there, do you know what I mean? So the wave practice is constantly going. And again, if you, you can shorten the pitch or lengthen the pitch, depending on what your outcomes are, but then you're specifically working on your number nine. And you might even say like, OK, can we play off the number nine as the first point of attack? Or it could be, can we play white? Do you know what I mean? But that's just one way to do it in a wave practice. But I, I do like to do it in front of the goal a hell of a lot, though, so. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned playing out from the back. I mean, I mean, really, that is about trying to create an, a new numerical overload, isn't it, from your players, you know, have the extra player. And if, if you know, to go playing through, going around or going over, I mean, that's that's the reality, isn't it, H? I suppose you the highest level trying to create an extra man who's trying to play at the back. Yeah, yeah. And there's, 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 there's like certain key components that, you know, I would call them non-negotiables, to be honest with you, that we have, which we need to create. Ideally, we need to create that that 6v4 at the bottom if we can. I think your front three, if you play with a front three, they have to stay high, high and wide and freeze the back line. It'll be an 8v6 or a 6v4, depending on what your two higher midfielders want to do. Um, fullbacks, really important. So just, as well. just, so just talk about, just go over that. Just so obviously your, your, your front, you want your front three pin in the back four, then I suppose, isn't it? So then that, then, then that creates the overload. So just explain to for the coaches and talk, talk a little yeah. bit more through detail about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's the back line in general. So out here, we, we a lot of teams play 3 4 3 out here. So a lot of teams play a back three. So for me, 
I want the wide players to try and stay in the eye line of the wing back so the wing back doesn't jump onto the clip ball because that clip ball that goes into our full back if it's on, then they'll they'll try and release themselves. But front three stay high straight away. Now, if you've got three players freezing four players or freezing five players, straight away you've got your advantage. Then it's about using your goalkeeper. Then it's about your serving lines. You you you're eight and ten. You know, again, for us, we want them outside the eye line of their markers to create that lane that goes straight into the nine. So probably similar to what Glenn was talking about there in terms of if you, you know, you're trying to create a practice where you want a service line that goes directly to feet to the nine or chest, then you need those guys outside, flipped outside the eye line of their two markers uh, and staying away. Really important that they stay away and they trust that first building phase. And for us, ultimately, is to get the ball into that first or second line and get front facing because I want teams to press us. I want teams to press us. The worst thing in the world for me is being, you know, being one all, two, two, whatever, or one nil down, and they've got all 11 behind the ball. It's hard to break down. It is hard to break down. So I want teams to be front foot against us. That helps our structure. We've got good technicians in the group that are, you know, that don't mind getting on it under under pressure, receiving it in, you know, an area as tight as a phone box, if you like. And then it's about, you know, making sure that you can play off your right hand and play off your left hand into your six or your fullback if you're a centre-half. You can play with depth and detail. We also say to to our centre-backs to play with better variety. So it's not just about head down and playing the first 12 to 15 yards. It's one in three, one in four. Can you search beyond? If you do search beyond, then the movement's got to be accurate. Um, how do we manipulate that? Then your front three changes. Your front, your nine drops in. Your, your two wide players come in and go beyond and it starts to look like a four diamond two. And then it's about fluidity and goes all the way back to what we spoke about earlier of being, when you're in possession, being out of position. Interesting. And so a couple of questions on that then. How, how, how patient do you have to be in developing that? How hard is that to get to the point where I suppose you and well the players trust it and you know they're confident doing it. We've seen it like, even in the Premier League when you know you get the the pundits, you know, if anyone loses the ball, they criticize, oh, you know, why are they playing out, just yell it, or but then as soon as they're playing out, you know, then everyone's celebrating it. And then two, what does that look like on the training pitch? How, how do you how do you deliver that? How do you get that through to the players? Um, all right, let me go two first and then I'll go one second. So two is every day. Um, I'll get on the plane, I will get on the plane tomorrow. 100% frustrated with something that I've already spoken about three times and it's not happened. That's football. That happens at every single level. I see, you know, so I see you smiling, you know, it's like, it's, it happens. It, I speak to a lot of my friends in the game and, you know, it happens at Premier League level, it happens at grass, it happens at every level. Um, we, we just have to really nail down, you know, nail down those principles of what we're after. And, in terms of sort of how you implement it, it's, it's every day. So we try to, if we can, get into the habit of we deliver a small, and when I say small, I'm talking three minutes video. Fellas, this is the plan for today. This is what we're after. This is what it looks like. So you're coaching before you get on the grass. And that's really, really important. If you have the facilities to do so in a full-time environment, it's really helpful. And those will look like clips of elite level. It will look like clips of us doing it, whether that be in a practice scenario or at elite level, you know, live on the TV. And then it's going out there. And then we revisit that every day. So it will be a small snapshot of yesterday. Fellas, this was us building against a, a mid-block. 
this was us trying to hook hook their nine out so that the centre half can break lines or step between whatever it might be. And then again, it's about you know every day everything you build around practice design, even if it's your boxes at the beginning, like your boxes at the beginning. Where do you want your centre halves in the boxes? Where do you want your nine in the boxes? It, you know, do, do you want your nine at the top of the box? Has your box got an outcome? Do you have too many goals where it's got to come off the nine to set back to go in? Do you want your centre-half serving into the pitch? Where do you want your full-backs? So it's, it's everything for me. It's, it's everything. And it's, um, it's a process that, like, I mean, if it happens overnight, I don't know about it. I, I want to know about it. I want to learn about how you can do it quickly. But it's honestly, it's every day you know, hammering it away and then the buying from the players, you have to sell the idea to them and then inspire their execution. So give us an idea then, what was, what's like a typical session? We're getting a point here, but I'm just, because I'm just nosy, so I want to know, because I know this tells like a typical session would look like for, an, you know, in a day or, you know, delivering in a week. Yeah, no, I'll, let me go for a week because it probably provides yeah. you a little bit more context. So, so next week, Monday will just be a re-entry day. So it's about it's about flushing the legs for the players. So the video will be post-match. So our post-match of you know what we did well, and we call it you know we, this is something that I've that I've taken from a friend of mine. We call it owning the ball, owning the pitch, owning both boxes, rather than in possession and out of possession. Owning the ball, owning the pitch, owning both boxes. So how we own the ball against the opposition, and how we dominated the pitch out of possession. And we go through that. Then Monday session will be a flush. So we'll get the, the little tables out. They'll play some two-touch. There'll be some boxes. And then we'll do a little bit of five-a-side. And the players that played the most minutes will then come away. They'll do some IDPs, which is just some individual development points on. It might be some small bits. And then the guys that didn't play as many minutes, they'll go and do a little bit more. And we'll do that in, in game-based scenarios. So we don't really, we don't really ever run them. So it's, you know, everything is, you know, is is an outcome with the ball. Um, and then that's led by the sports scientists. And then Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Tuesdays is owning the ball and the game plan around how we win the game. So I never build the opposition up like they're Real Madrid. Um, it's about how we go and win the game, how we dominate the ball. And that session will well, generically, it will be, you know, if I was to just say, you know, what did Tuesday session look like this week? Um, Tuesday session was boxes at the beginning after they've warmed up. And the boxes were actually similar to what we've spoken about, where it was a 4v3 in the first part of the box. You have to exit the first part of the box with five passes, because again, on a re-game, we have a rule that we have to get to five if we can't break quickly. So we have to get to five. So get to five open the second part of the box through the midfielder, play off the nine, runners beyond. And this week, obviously this is going to go out later, so it's not a problem. But this week, our game plan is how we create a diamond against Tampa with our nine. So we're going to play a, going to play a number 10 as a number nine. So all week it was about how he comes in off the line and how our two forwards go beyond. After that, we did a small phase. So again, the phase was goalkeeper included, back four, just a midfield line, line of engagement. Um, creating a 4v2 so it would be a 3v2 because they play a 3-4-3 how we get through the first two parts of the pitch and how we get into the final third and how we create from that and then we did a scenario based 11v11 so just to capture the imagination of, of the players I use a white ball but I do a lot of um, a lot of old school games if you like so I find a team in the past that have played the opposition shape find a team in the past that have played our shape and then say okay this is the scenario you'll be 
you'll be Barcelona 2005 whatever it is you'll be Chelsea 2005 these are your player cards so I coach one team so I coach one team the other team I give them player cards of two outcomes in possession out possession of the ball this is what we expect from you with the ball with the ball break lines without the ball stop the line from dropping in etc um, so that was Tuesday Wednesday is without the ball owning the pitch are we, are, you know, do we want to go and stand on the opposition? Do we want to invite? Do we want to press? And then Friday is very much, very light. We do a lot of set pieces Friday. Um, we do a little bit of pattern work of things that we might want to, we might want to see in the game. Um, and then in terms of video, video is probably two hours a week in total um, and probably 15, 20 minutes each segment of the day. And some days saw it will be sort of 10 minutes before the session. It might be 15 minutes after the session. But we do a fair bit of video and then that's backed up with a lot of individual meetings. Players will come in a lot and I'll share that with me and my coaches of individual clips and trying to link it all back in and sew it all together with what we're after. Interesting. Just going to think about like, especially particularly the Tuesday, I mean, pretty much every session, every practice some element of overloads and they're trying to create overloads in there right so it just goes to show you how important it is so what do you like to, uh, now because obviously you're, you're, you're at first team level now does that does that have an effect about how you know you, you would look back and think how you're going to coach the younger players the eights and nines obviously you've gone through all the way you know you paid you've coached in every development phase and they do first team has that changed your your your, your outlook your vision or, or is it still the same yeah, do you know what? My answer to that is absolutely not and definitely. So if I can explain what that means. So I always thought to myself, you know, I don't want to get to first team level and then kind of think, oh, you know, I want to completely change and change the wheel of what was going on before. And, I, you know, I've really backed my beliefs. I think one thing I have noticed massively is you see what they haven't had. You can see those clear missing ingredients, what they haven't had. So it's, it's, you know, when I say when, because I definitely will, because, you know, when I, when I worked in academy football, I, you know, it was my favourite days in football. When I go, when I go and work in an academy again, I think I'll be better because you see those clear deficiencies of, and, and the why, the why is the big thing of a great player, great vision, fantastic first touch, cannot get out of trouble on his own. Cannot get out of trouble. Can't wriggle, can't twist and turn, can't faint. Why? Well, it's because he wasn't exposed to X, Y and Z. Or player B who's, you know, who's really big, really physical, can't use his size correctly. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because of X, Y and Z. Or you get a runner, someone that's, you know, who's got fantastic pace, but in their head wants to be a messy and drop a shoulder and do a step over when they could just use their main weapon. Why? So it always goes back to why. And I think probably, the, you know, the two clear things for me is number one, you know, we've, we've been talking about it, was the practice design correct and were the outcomes for the player or were they for the coach? That's a really, really important one. Were they for the player or were they for the coach? Did the coach want the practice to look really good? Was it actually, should it be more player-centred? Was the pitch long enough for the runner? Was it long enough? So we spoke about, you asked me about practice design with an overload, you know, and you spoke about, something John McDermott did. I used to use loads of different outcomes to suit different players. I would use mini goals. Why mini goals? Well, you might be working with an eight-year-old that cannot strike the ball properly, but has unbelievable vision. Balls on cones, same thing. 
end zones, end zones for your runners, because it's not really fair on the kid that's always going to be quick, that's quicker than everyone now, if we do a pitch which is 15 by 15. How's he going to ever use his weapon? So that that's the why. And then the other why for me is identity. Like, why is there not a conversation going on with a 13, 14, 15-year-old of going, right, Jimmy, tell me what your two absolute key strengths are. They call it over here, they call it the elevator pitch. So you get in a lift. Mm. Within that 10 seconds, you've got to be able to tell someone what you're good at. Why are those conversations not going on more? Okay, tell me your two key strengths. Tell me your two weapons you're going into battle with today. Okay, do you know what? It's my pace. It's my power. Brilliant. Use it. Use it more. These, this is when you use it. So for me, coming, coming to first team level and seeing, I know this is the longest answer in the world, fellas. Sorry. But <laughs> it's a good one. Details for sort of that, yeah. Seeing the, seeing the, the probably the grey areas and the grey spots you know, really highlights where the failings have been during their development pathway. Interesting. Then, any thoughts on that? Yeah, just going back to a comment right at, right at the beginning of the other question when he asked, answered one or two there, you know, that whole thing about, you know, what Einstein said about in theory, theory and practice are the same, uh, but in practice we know they're completely different, right? And that, that's where, you know, all of this comes into it as well. And what's really fascinating there is Harry's still talking about individuals. So we've been banging on about individuals. For me, we still watch Premier League footballers, and I'm sure Harry sees it in America as well, and senior footballers. You know, the game doesn't break down because they didn't understand the 3v2 or what it looked like. They probably had the intent to do it, but they had the, like Harry was saying there, the physical incompetency or there was a technical deficiency somewhere, or there was a football intelligence thing. You know, they missed timing of the pass or passed it to the outside rather than inside a defender or refused the pass and go on his own. So it's interesting to see. And I still, I'm really pleased to hear that Harry passionately said that absolutely he would do it the same way in terms of like, you know, building the individual 1v1 first at a young age and then profiling them more specifically to their personality as they go through the youth development phase and stuff. And it's uh, it probably, the question I would say, if you don't want me to ask the question is, then how much would we say at senior level do, do individuals still need coaching as well? Do you know what I mean? So how much is geared around to individual clips? Because I think it needs to be more at team level. There's loads of this team tactical stuff, but how much is individual clips? Do you know what I mean? I know you said like two, three minutes, but how much time would you spend on it, Harry, in terms of correcting individual players at senior level? Yeah, no, it's a great question. The answer is I don't think generically it's it's done enough. And I can't listen, I can't comment on anything that goes on outside of my my four walls. But with us, we have a 15-minute block at the end of every session, three times a week. Of so all of the lads get an individual development plan every six weeks. So to to kind of paint a picture for you guys and the guys listening is it's a PDF. What are your two weapons? profile picture of that player talks about their personality word and then it's three three targets that they set their self and then I set them one target at the end of the six weeks that's then hyperlinked with a two minute video of each one clips they grade their self now at the end of each session they have a 15 minute block that 15 minute block they can either go isolated so if it's a fullback and he wants to work on his crossing for me six out of ten is okay go and work on your crossing Seven out of ten is, okay, go and work on your crossing, being served the ball in by one of the midfielders who's got to work on that particular action. And eight or nine out of ten is now go and put a centre forward in the box who's now got to work on his arrival time and timing of his run and angle of his run and execution of finish, etc. And then a ten out of ten is, okay, what about if we put some opposition in the way and 
whatever. But that's 15 minutes three times a week. That's a long time across a 10-month season. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but what I do, what I do know is, you know, you're looking at sort of three, four hours a month that these boys are just solely focusing on, on their, their craft. And then the clips and the video, when they come into my office, then that's normally probably 15, 20 minutes. And I don't do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of listening in that. So they come in, they've clipped, you know, they've, they've either gone on my scout and waited for their clips to be uploaded so they can just go through it, or they've clipped it themselves. We use something called Speedio, um, where they can create their own tag panel. And their tag panel can be anything that they want. They come in and go over it and we discuss it. There's a lot of listening from me because, you know, I want to I hear their understanding of what, you know, what we feel as a team. And as a team, I mean, you know, myself, my staff and the players. What we feel, you know, that they need to get to, where they need to get to in order to, to improve. Um, I, think it needs to, I think it needs to go on more. I think, you know... Ultimately, the team is the most important thing because, you know, it is what it is. Three points are three points. Tonight, an individual, if we win the game, an individual is going to come up with a moment of brilliance to win us the game. So you have to respect that and you can't lose, you can't lose, you can't lose view of that landscape that the individual is, is going to be king in those, you know, those key moments. Yeah, really interesting. A lot of my people might be surprised about first team players having IDPs. I know... They do the same at Arsenal first. I see Carlos Cueto does a lot of work in that area as well in terms of, you know, analysing game sort of stuff. So it's interesting, is, I suppose, like I say, how much time can you, do you, um, do you get it to get to work with the players? What, what about then, H, what's your thoughts? You talk, mentioned when you do the boxes and stuff, and that's another you know, way to use overloads. What's your thoughts on that sort of thing with, you know, working with 9s, 10s, 11s, 12s, 13s, you know, in, in the younger age groups? When and where is it appropriate? How much is it, is it appropriate? Uh, listen, it's... It depends on the context. And again, it depends on the why. Um, I think I sit on the fence with certain things and I don't, you know, I don't do it because I don't want to answer the question. I do it because I don't know the context. So when I went to West Ham, every single age group, it's when Terry Wesley was the academy manager, every single age group did boxes at the start of every session. Every single age group. And I didn't know why. I'd never seen it before. I'd never seen an under nines group do boxes. Um, when we was at Millwall, I was, I was extreme in every age group I worked at, whether it was 12s, whether it was 16s, on outplaying 1v1. Chelsea, we was, you know, when we worked there, so we worked together, you know, we was, we was all about mastering the ball physically, developing yourself to master the ball correctly, um, outplaying 1v1, thinking 2v1. Um, and it took me probably like, two or three months to really see some of the, some of the excellent outcomes of, of doing those things at West Ham. You know, the players could combine extremely quickly. They could make decisions extremely quickly to, to outplay using a teammate. Um, but there's a trade-off with everything, isn't there? There's a trade-off. So you have to, I keep saying the word, you have to understand the why and you have to understand the benefits of doing it. So, uh, would a you know would a player that's exposed to that constantly rather than exposed to a small sided game when they used to arrive in the dome at Chelsea, me and Ozzy used to throw a ball in the middle of the pitch and let them play five v five on arrival. Then we'd throw a different ball on the on the pitch, which was a different colour. You wasn't allowed to pass. So you'd have a small sided game going on. Then you'd have another ball on the pitch. It's like you can't pass that one. If you land on that, you've got to go and try and do everybody. Um, and again, it's like. That was our why. 
our why was, well, when Callum Hudson Odoi or Ben Elliott or you know, Miles Per Harris lands on the ball, we want them to be fantastic at, at doing exactly that. You know, Jamal Masiala, and it's you know it's not it's not harm them, but I'm sure there's been thousands and thousands of players that have gone through the you know the other the other way of doing it that have, that have come through and are excellent players as well. So uh, to answer your question, so I don't think there's a right or wrong as long as there's a there's a method to your madness, if that makes sense. Just to try and think for we'll come back to you in a second. I think you know all those grassroots coaches out there, you know, if I can run a 10s or 11s team or girls team, boys team, whatever, you know, what's, you know, what's, what are the major, ta- what would be the major takeaways to this? You know, you, you've got to recommend, you know, talk about overloads, you know, we'd see how important it is at the top level. I mean, how important is it for them? And, you know, at that level, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, look, yeah, I'll, I'll be really honest. Like, why are you just, why are you doing it? Like, if you, if you're doing it because you want your under 10s, you know, to play like Barcelona's 2011 team, like what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, just develop your players. Develop your push your push your strongest player now. It might not be your strongest player in 18 months. Push them in a certain way. Um, your player that might be struggling a little bit, like help them. I, I think I think we want to get every player in in that learning zone, as they call it. And I think. Your top players, you've probably got to stress them out a little bit to get them in the learning zone. And your players that are struggling, you've probably got to make them a little bit more comfortable to get them in the learning zone. And it's a cycle. It's a cycle. But, yeah, you know, not not for me, so not not for me, that one. I think, you know, it's, like I said, I think it it has to be, it has to be done with a, with a why and, a, you know, a reasoning behind it. It can't just be because it looks pleasing on the eye, you know, a group of 10-year-olds playing one touch. I don't think... I mean, anyone's massively developing as an individual doing that as a constant. I think there's got to be a real good variety in there. Interesting. Glenn, any thoughts? Yeah, a lot of stuff there sort of comes back to like three of the C's of coaching, like the content, you know, what are you coaching? Do you understand why you're coaching it? Um, again, that's got to be age, ability and game-centred. Of course, we've got to be teaching them the game. If we're not teaching them the game, so for example, if we're not, if we, if we're doing overloads without an offside line, well, that's fine. That is a central defence overload or a midfield overload. And as long as you can encourage it, you say, for example, you want Iniesta to stand behind people in a so-called offside position. But then if we're doing overloads to work on the Jamie Vardy's of this world and breaking in and we don't put an end line in the, in the session, for example, then we're not really working on overloads or not, not them specific overloads. And then you've got the, the, obviously the concept. And it's interesting what um, Harry said a while ago about grey areas. So I think it feels like Harry sits on the fence a bit like, you know, you, you even had a pop of me. Come on, Glenn, stop sitting on the fence the other day, right? But genuinely, I think it's because we've coached in the grey area more than we have the black and the white. So there are some black and white concepts. So there are some absolute principal concepts of overloads. You know, if you're minus one, so if you're overloaded, minus one, minus two, you need to retreat, you need to surrender space, you need to be thoughtful, you need to almost survive. If you're plus one, plus two, yes, we want to go more aggressive, more direct, quicker, get to the goal. So as an example of a basic concept some of these things are black and white but when you're put into the conundrum so uh, harry said a lot lots of different players there but you know so even in youth development the players go through cycles as well you can go from having a physically incredibly mature group to you know working with little hobbits that are all like three foot tall and you do you know what i mean and i think that that's where a lot of this coaching lies and i hope the listeners are picking up from harry that is working in senior football that actually a lot of that gray area stuff 
is where the magic of coaching happens. And yes, we've got to have the understanding of overloads, but we've got to know exactly what we're coaching and when. And the most important, like Harry said there, is the why. And I hope that the coaches are, are, are picking up on that as well in terms of helping their players develop. So there's some great points in there. Yeah, interesting. I think, yeah, you both made some really interesting point there. And it is points there, isn't it? I suppose it is that, you know, am I, am I coaching the team to win or am I coaching players to develop players? I suppose that's that's really the key, isn't it? I suppose you, the argument for when I see all these, you know, Twitter, you know, saying, oh, yeah, everything's a rondo, everything's going to be rondo, eight, seven, eight, nine years old. Fair enough. But it's, you know, this, like you say, when are they getting their... Uh, Ball time, do you know what I mean? Their individual ball time on it, and what what are they trying to, what are they really trying to achieve? H, any thoughts? Anything else? No, I think I, I think it's spot on. I, I just I think the last thing you said is really important. You know, that really really key that a footballer has time with a football. Like, really important, and it's you know it's such a basic thing to say, but um, I don't think you know I don't think Adele was created and developed into a world-class singer by passing the microphone to other people that's my that's my standpoint on it wow glenn any any final any final thoughts that yeah um especially to the youth coaches of the younger age group you know i don't know how many times we keep saying this so it should be the opening of the podcast maybe but keep bringing it back to the individual don't neglect the ball. You have to, you know, really dominate the ball and master the ball before you can the game. But, you know, keep t- teaching them the game, but try and always keep it age and, and, and ability relevant as well. And um, individuals, you know, you can see if, if Harry's saying now in 2022 that he's really focusing on individuals and maybe 20 years ago, let's be honest, maybe that was lacking in British football as a general thing where individuals didn't really get coached. It was like, fellas, get out there. And when you're not performing, we'll take you off the pitch and we'll put someone else in. Um, I hope that, coaches of youth players are seeing that. So the more they're coaching their individuals to, to fit into the team and fit into the game, actually that's the environment they're going to be going into in five, 10 years time anyway. And try and get them a really good thing. I ain't spoke about yet. So, but I'm, I'm doing it among my college boys because two reasons, I think they're lazy learners and I think they're holding their hands out too much for everyone to do stuff for them. So I'm similar to Harry. I've gone quite quiet, a lot of listening, um, Sometimes it's hard to do that when you feel like you've got a knowledge and a lot of things to say, but that's the skill of the coach again. And with this clipping thing, so we've got VO and we've got it as a tool. I don't do any individual clips. Um, some of the highlights in the games will do, and I know it's not performance-based yet. Yeah, they're still 16 to 21. They're learning how to get into, find their place into senior football somewhere, whether it's on the non-league pyramid or get a scholarship. But So I encourage them to do it. I might steer there. I might guide their thoughts. So, okay, look, some of your playing out from the back weren't too great. Clip all your bits on playing in your own half. I might say to the winger, look, your movement was a bit too static today. Think about the unorthodox runs we were talking about. Can you make more runs on the inside? And then I think giving them that ownership, and it's great to hear Harry saying it with the first team players, giving them that ownership of saying, look, come on, you've got to take responsibility for your own learning. is such a powerful thing for, for the young kids. And I'm pleased it's actually going on at senior first team level as well, mate. So Interesting. And H, while we got you, it tells a little bit about just, you know, you're, you know, you've made a big step there. You've gone from... Academy football from West Ham you, you, across uh, across the Atlantic to another country to coach at first team level. What what's, what have been the main challenges for you in in that in the, after you you know you've done the whole season you just coming into your second season? What what, what have been the major challenges for you? Um, yeah, there was, there's there's been a few. I mean, the first season, um, the first season it was it was very much just go and take the opportunity. So 
I didn't I didn't really have a massive say on the recruitment of any of the players. I was in, you know, that there you that's that's your group. Go and coach them, try try and develop winners. Um, the travel was a big eye opener for me. The country is so big, you know, you fly to every game. It's you know So for, for example, from Connecticut to Tampa, how long is that flight? Three hours. Wow. Um for the for the for the for the players, like you have to put it into context. So three hours doesn't sound massive, but you're up, do your presentation, your breakfast, etc. Then you're at the airport waiting around in the airport and your flight gets delayed. Then you're on the plane, then you're off the plane, you're waiting for baggage, then you're on the coach, 40 minutes to the hotel, then you've got to go and flush the legs. That's every week. Then don't forget you're going over to the West Coast as well. So it might be two flights, it might be three flights, uh, different time zones. Last year we played in Colorado and New Mexico where at half time, because of the altitude, boys couldn't breathe. And that was like it, it was it was a you know massive eye opener. I'm going, you know, I'm going at my wingers saying, You're picking it up, get at the fullback, get at him. <laughs> He's going, Gaff, I, I can't. can't okay. <laughs> He's getting on the ball, bouncing it back one touch. I'm going, get at him, son. Going, I, I literally can't. I can't. <laughs> um so that was that was, you know, that was that was good. Dealing with owners, dealing with, you know, dealing with expectations. Um, obviously dealing with media. So, you know, we're on, we're on ESPN every week. So when you win, you're, you're the king. When you lose, you, you know, you're, you're useless, you're terrible. Dealing with defeat, um, you know, again, like I talk about this openly. I don't hide it. Every, you know, every, every manager's record's on the internet, so you can't hide it. So we went through, we, we was expected to finish bottom. We've got the second smallest budget in the country. Our first four games... You know, we went away to Miami and won. We beat New York Red Bulls 7-0. But then mid part of the season, I lost five on the spin. You lose five on the spin in football, you're down the road. You're done. And it was, it was, you know, for me, it was probably the best thing that's happened to me of how do you, after a loss on a Saturday, you, you know, you've got to travel back with the with the with the players. You've got to, you've got to have a certain mentality, you've got to have a you know, you've got to be seen in a certain way. Monday, how do you change it up? How do you, you know, how do you stop that rot? How do you turn it around? Um, so that was a that was a big learning curve for me. It's, it's it, honestly, I say this to everyone that will listen. It was, last year was probably five years worth of learning in one year for me. It's by a mile, the most I've developed in my career. That's like what's like. I mean, dealing with that pressure and the stress, what's that like? You know, sleepless nights and that sort of thing. Like I say, you can do five and a bounce and you've gone from beating Red Bull 7 nil to five and a bounce. It's the extreme extremities of football there, right? Yeah, it's, it, it is what it is. Like, what I would say is, is I'd say to, I want to say two things before we finish. So the first thing I'll say to the people listening is like, don't rush. Don't rush. To, it's not a race to get to first team number because it might not be for you. There is a lot of pressure. And it's either for you or it's not. You know, you're dealing with, I'm 32, my oldest player's 33. So I'm dealing with players that, are, you know, I'm going to probably give a debut this season to a couple of 16-year-olds that we've got in. But I'm dealing with players that have, you know, players that have played in, in, in Spain for Valencia. I'm dealing with players that have not kicked a ball for, for the first team. I'm dealing with players that have played all over the world, different nationalities, different languages. You know, it's tough. The pressures are tough. The owner calls you, you know, what's going on? We've not won in five games. And then mm -hmm. you, know, you've got to, you have to deal with those things. You also have to deal with managing expectations after you've just... We come here last year, we beat Tampa Bay. They were the, they were the champions of the East, Eastern Conference. I've got to manage the expectations there of Santa Marina. Listen, we probably shouldn't have done that. You know, that's, that's a really good result. 
Um, so you have to manage that as well. That's not going to happen every week. The second thing I wanted to say to the listeners is like people that are listening to this, first of all, thank you because they're on the ground. They're working with, they are working with the next Phil Foden. They are working with the next Callum hudson Um, And these podcasts, I think, are brilliant because no one's on here battering anybody. This is just for listening uh, and to, you know, to get a different viewpoint and a different slant on people that have been through what they're going through right now. You know, I've been at Cray Wanderers. I've been at Welling United. Going through that and and understanding. And, And I think that a lot of these people that are listening to this, guys, they're volunteers. So they get up. You know, they get up every morning for the love of the game, whether it's their son's team or or whatever. They get up, they do two training sessions a week on a Tuesday, Thursday night, hammering down with rain, freezing cold, and they're in front of the kids. And the Sunday morning, they're there with the water bottles and, you know, they've got to be, you know, smiling, they've got to be positive. They do a brilliant job. They do an absolutely outstanding job. And I think if we can upskill these people that we've got doing this, mums, dads, everybody... I think we've got a chance of producing even better players because we've got the best right now, where we are right now, we have got one of the best youth development systems in the world and we're not getting it right. We're still not getting it right. So I think, you know, if we, if we start to educate better earlier, as coaches and players, sky's the limit for us. But, you know, it's just mass, massively important to say thank you to these people that are listening because, they, you know, their, their commitment is unbelievable. Yeah, look, great point and what a great way to finish your show. But uh, yeah, listen, H, thanks very much, mate. It's been really insightful. Thanks for your time. It's been fantastic. Glenn, thanks as well, mate, as always. And yeah, uh, really yeah, enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that. Listen, remember, if you've got any questions, don't be afraid to email them, email them to us or message us on uh, Twitter and also any ideas for the shows or, or uh, guests as well. But on that one, we'll see you soon. See you next time. Thanks again, boys. Welcome to the Coaching Family Soccer Coaching Podcast. A podcast for soccer coaches from grassroots to the pro game. Soccer coaches who love the game, love coaching and want to get better. Join our community on Twitter at Coaching Family.